And welcome to the Glacially Musical Podcast, the most insulting podcast in the business. This is Nick Cameron of Glacially Musical, and I'm joined by Shrikanth of Babe RC. How are you doing today? Hey, Nick. I'm excellent. It's Saturday night. I've had my dinner. My baby's put to sleep, so I'm all ready to go. I'm going to say that that's a little bit strange because here I am and it's Saturday morning due to a long week. I have just woken up. I'm on my second cup of cold brew coffee, which is probably the greatest invention uh, humanity has ever come up with, I think. I don't think we're ever going to top cold brew coffee. Uh, what are your thoughts on that topic? So there is something called filter coffee in South India. It's very unique to uh, the way we make it. So uh, you you make, uh, so we get kind of a not, not too fine kind of a uh, powder blend. Mm-hmm. So uh, pure coffee. Uh, uh, it's grown in the in the hills nearby, and uh, uh, kind of coarse. So we put it through a percolator. Uh, so we we basically uh, make it early in the morning, and then it's ready by uh, the time I have my breakfast. So it drips slowly, and then it forms in in the uh, container below. So it's like a, a two level container. So and then we take that. So it's kind of like a strong espresso, and then we uh, add how much of milk we want, and then our sugar. And some people just drink it black as well. So that is our filter coffee. And I have that almost every day. So okay, that yeah. sounds really interesting. Yeah. So it's, uh, I also like the Balinese coffee as well. So I like these two. Balinese is not the coarse one. It's, it's, it's fine. And uh, uh, I had that in Bali and I brought it back. I love that as well. But some, for some reason, I don't get that here. So that is just uh, fine coffee. And all the coffee settles in, in, the, in the bottom of your uh, cup. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you just don't drink all the way down. Uh, that's pretty awesome as well. Yeah, I, uh, I, we have a probably a three gallon, maybe maybe not three, maybe a gallon and a half, like punch jar that's got a little yeah. spigot at the bottom, and I yeah. make three to four French presses of coffee a day, and I fill that thing up. But I love French presses as well. <laughs> it, well, no, I, I, but I, that's how I use, that's how I make my cold brew coffee because you can squish it down. Yeah, yeah, and. But then the spigot is about an inch above the bottom. Yeah. So you don't get the grossness at the bottom. Because there's always some nasty stuff there. Yep. Sorry, I'm really having a hard time waking up here today. So uh, tell us about uh, Bayversi. So um, Bayversi is from Bangalore. Uh, we're all dudes in our um, late 30s, early 40s. The oldest person's 42. The youngest is the rookie. He's 31, and we've been around since 2008. We started playing in 2010 when we finally got like a uh, you know gigable uh, lineup together, and uh, we've been playing ever since. We put out an album in 2012, 2013. We were supposed to go to Maryland Death Fest, uh, play out in Europe, uh, didn't happen. 2015, uh, we made our second album. Uh, 2016, uh, we gigged a lot. 2016, late 2016, we took a break. Uh, that break went on for four years. Uh, you know, in comes pandemic, we started uh, thinking about, you know, doing stuff again because we wanted a release. We wanted like a break from uh, all of this nonsense. So there was just too, too much uh, polarizing politics, too much uh, of this, uh, you know, too many conspiracy theories, too much for us to digest. So we all thought, okay, maybe we should focus on the music, just bring that back, right? So we all, uh, I set up my home studio again, 
uh, helped my bandmates set up their home studios again. I we started figuring out how to do this without a jam room, without us going into a studio. We started writing an album. Uh, we did demos back and forth. I would get on calls like this. We would sit and arrange songs. Uh, we would basically, um, uh, after the demo, we would listen to everything and then we'll fine tune everything. And then begins the project management, a bit of getting one by one out into a proper studio. So I would be that constant one person and I would call one by one. First would be the drummer. Next would be just me playing guitars. Next would be the bassist. And then would be uh, the other guitar player. He would play some solos. So finally, the vocalist. Uh, so one by one, people would just, uh, you know, come over or go to the proper studio. And we just recorded the entire album. And then we started mixing it as well. So that was 2020 for us. 2021 was basically us uh, trying to uh, still survive this horrible pandemic. Uh, then we started putting out uh, our music as well. So we thought, we'll just space it out. Let's just get this first single out of the way. Uh, then start. We have five more songs. All of them are worthy to be singles. But uh, we uh, put the first one out because it's the timeless zone. It's the name of the album as well. So uh, more music to come. But here we are. So we don't know when to play live for again. Uh, we don't know if that will ever happen. Um, but we're just waiting to see, you know, how things pan out. Well, what is, because, sorry, I, I got like six thoughts in my head and they're all fighting right now. <laughs> uh, first, I wanted to go back to your 2015 album. That came out around the same time as Iron Maiden's last album. And I actually was made fun of by some friends of mine for for reviewing this crazy Indian doom metal rather than the new Iron Maiden album. Why am I not reviewing the new Iron Maiden album? Well, because everybody's heard of that one. Nick, you're cutting off a little bit. Oh, sorry. Um, what was the last thing you heard? Did you did you get me on that? I, I know you said something about 2015's Maiden album. Oh, sorry. Your, came to you for your 2015 yeah. album came out at around the same time as Iron Maiden's last album. Yeah, yeah. And I had people asking me, why are you reviewing this crazy Indian doom metal? Why aren't you talking about Iron Maiden? <laughs> oh, everybody's heard. Everybody knows that Iron Maiden album's out. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's the small guys who don't get the uh get the space exactly and that's always been you know that that's always been my thing because yeah. my you know for me music journalism and i use that term really loosely based on yeah. what i've ever done it's it's not about discussing what metallic is doing or what slipknot is doing yeah i don't get paid for it so i don't have yeah. to do anything to keep up being paid yeah I do whatever the hell i want and i like I, I like reading more about the smaller bands and the smaller guys. What I'm really curious about is what is the metal scene? Because, you know, going back to what my friend had said, yeah. why are you talking about this Indian metal band? Cause I thought that was, yeah. I thought that was an interesting hook because here in America, we don't know of any kind of Indian scenes. What's it like over there? Um, we used to have a pretty decent scene. Um, scene again is uh, a mix of, uh, bands trying to play old school stuff. Uh, we have some death metal bands, some black metal bands. Um, so there is no like subgenre, subculture kind of a thing. Uh, we mostly have bands trying to play old fashioned stuff, uh, which basically is a mix of old death metal, old thrash metal, old heavy metal. And we also uh, are in that kind of a bracket. So even if you play old hard rock and old death metal, you're, you're still in the same kind of a scene, right? And then the, it, it is all of those bands. And then it is the uh, modern kind of bands, like, you know, bands trying to play Lamb of God or the bands trying to play uh, music like Periphery and uh, 
uh, tesseract or whatever it is so uh, it's two different scenes there is definite overlap because the scene is so small uh, we know those people they know us um, there is some kind of camaraderie because we uh, sometimes play the same shows same festivals but small shows the club level shows are mostly uh, specific to the scene so it, it's it's a couple of headliners with some new bands coming up uh, that kind of a thing so uh, not so not too many of them happen so a lot of these bands they basically become promoters themselves they start organizing shows and uh, they invite other bands and uh, you know bands get together do things so uh, right now the scene is pretty much dead just like it is anywhere in the world so uh, it has to uh, you know uh, that the clubs have to come back the restaurants have to open again uh, the the venues uh, need to be given licenses again uh, so it's it's a whole big mess i don't know when it's going to you know uh, sort itself out we we we've heard a, a couple of things about how things are going over there with the pandemic and yeah you know, I don't like to spend too much time on pandemic talk for these kinds of things, just yep. because we've all been through it. But it's so impossible to avoid because yeah. what we have been dealing with over in in the entire world, it's it's been such a cloud, been such a you know, it's like a towel thrown over the whole globe. And yeah, we here in the United States are slowly coming out of it. Things are. Yeah. Uh, you know, my, my wife and I had lunch out in a restaurant for the first yep. time on, I think it was Tuesday of last week. It was the first yeah. time we had sat together in a yeah. restaurant in 15 yeah. months. Yeah. And we were both lucky enough to be vaccinated with, well, I mean, here in the States, anybody can get vaccinated now. Yeah. But, and, you know, this week we actually went out to eat. Unfortunately, we went to Applebee's and Fazoli's places. I'm not big a big fan of, but yeah. you know, movie theaters are starting to open up. We're going on a vacation here soon, and yeah. but it's I don't know how ready I am to go to a concert. Uh, not ready yet. <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure. It's yeah. Well, you know, when you talk about the conspiracy theories. Yeah. Here in the states, conspiracy theories have always existed. I mean, they, they're going to exist from to the end of time. But you know, have you heard some of the things they've said about the vaccines over here? Absolutely, yeah. The world okay. is small, and and uh, it kind of percolates. Uh, it's basically uh, you know, social media is fully global, so it, it starts in one place, and it's a community. God, it goes around. Nobody else outside of this country <laughs> ridiculous stuff, but you know. Uh, there's apparently a tracking chip in the yeah. vaccine. Uh, I heard somebody say, and I won't say where I heard this because I don't want anybody to talk about it, but I heard somebody saying that they're worried the vaccine will change your DNA to make you less resistant yeah. to the flu. And I'm like, what? Yeah. <laughs> you realize what kind of a medical and scientific breakthrough it would be if they could put a, a shot in you and change your yeah. DNA? Yeah. That's like <laughs> the the funny part is right. I mean, uh, people were uh, all you know anti Bill Gates last year, and look what Bill Gates is doing. He's getting negative press from his own ex wife, and uh, he's he's just not making things better for the pro vax crowd, right? No, he's not. <laughs> I, well, I'm trying to decide how to phrase what I'm thinking, and. Yeah. 
I don't think anybody like Bill Gates can ever make anything better for anyone necessarily. When you reach the level he is, the level of detachment you have from the world. Yeah. Yeah. So big. Yeah. Which is why you can't place our trust and faith in billionaires. Yeah, absolutely. But that's enough socialism (laughs) talk. So uh, one of the things I like to talk about, I like to learn about people, you know, where they're from, especially people from in other countries, because, yeah. so tell me, so you're from Bangalore, am I correct on that? Yep. Yep. What is the main, like, local food dish of Bangalore? Uh, South India, South India is basically uh, the home of dosas. Have you heard of dosas? No, tell me all about it. Dosa is basically like a crepe, but uh, kind of a salt, salted and uh, kind of, um, it's, it's exactly like a crepe, but salted. And it's served with a couple of, uh, uh, we call them chutneys. Uh, they're basically uh, kind of dips, right? So mm-hmm. those uh, crepes are eaten for breakfast. It's made out of rice and um, there is a batter and it's, it's uh, laid out like a spiral, the crepe way. And it, it tastes wonderful. So, um, and it's also served with this thing called sambar. Sambar is made made out of um, some lentils and some vegetables, and it's it's pretty tasty stuff. So this so this is the home of that kind of food, and uh, we also ha- eat a lot of uh, rice and lots of uh, you know coconut in our uh, cuisine. I personally come from a place called Kerala. Kerala is more south than here, so the uh, where there is more tropical, there is more greenery, there is more water, there is more uh, uh, soil is more rich to give you, you know, <laughs> more uh, more nicer vegetables. So uh, lots of vegetables, lots of seafood for, pe- for people who eat that. Uh, people eat, uh, uh, you know, beef and, and uh, chicken and uh, mutton and everything as well. So whatever is available, people eat. But we are primarily rice eaters. Uh, rice goes uh, for lunch, dinner, and like I said, breakfast as well. So rice is used on, on all our food. When I first met my wife, yeah. she told me about how much she loved Indian food. Yeah. Now, which, I mean, I don't completely understand because to this day, she can't eat anything spicy. Yeah. So, I mean, that, the whole thing confused me. But we would go and she, but for the first couple of years we were together and we've been together for forever, like almost 15 years now. And yeah. she would tell me, is that your cat or is that my cat? It's mine. Oh, okay. I have three <laughs> and I don't know where they are. So it could have been. Um, so where was I? Oh, yeah, Indian food. So for me, Indian food, I learned about it watching English television, which is probably one of the most ridiculous things ever until I found out how much they love Indian food. But it took me like three or four. Oh, my God, that cat is awesome. Don't mute it. Let people hear the this cat. This is Ellie. What's the name She's of the cat? Ellie. 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 Okay. I have As three. Elizabeth. We have Louis the Ninth, Gigi, and uh, Princess Leia. I don't know. Awesome. <laughs> uh, the door again. Doors closed. But we we finally found a restaurant in in yeah. St. Louis called Himalayan Yeti, which is uh, Indian food and Nepalese food. I haven't tried the yeah. Nepalese food, but that was the first yeah. place I, I I tried it. Went. Oh my god! I actually see why you've talked about this for so long. But yeah. for like a while, she wouldn't take me to any Indian places because she would only eat Indian when she was in New York. Her best friend lived in New York for quite a while. 
And so she yeah. does every other year. And, you know, I, I don't even know where I'm going with this. I don't remember. <laughs> no, but but if, if you're a meat eater and if you're trying to get off of meat, right? Uh, it doesn't have to be vegan, but if you want to get off of meat, I think you have to eat Indian food because there is so much variety, so much to choose from. Uh, you can just get a whole lot of protein just by eating that lentil thing that I just told you about. They, they make like a hundred different things out of lentils and high, high protein pulses and things like that. I think that that's the food to eat if you want to get off of meat. But when I was good food for you and other people, yeah. When I was eating less meat uh, earlier and uh, a few years back, I would put lentils in my rice. Yeah, I would just put throw some lentils in there just to 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 strengthen my rice. Yeah, uh, I, I don't know enough about lentils. I need to look more into that because I know they're good for you and I know they're high protein. And I am probably and I I, I, well, I mean I know right now because with the way. You know, like I said, I don't want to talk about the pandemic, but it always comes up. During the pandemic, <laughs> I have not been, like, for the first year of it, I was working remotely. And then after our, my company uh, eliminated my position in the worst economic recession of my lifetime, I found yes. another job, thankfully. And I'm not working remotely because I had to be trained. And it's a very long training process. I'm, I'm still training, honestly, and I've been there for six months. But... I have not felt comfortable eating in the break room or eating at my desk like I, like I would. Cause that doesn't, you know, just, so it's, I've been eating so much fast food. You know, we were <laughs> last night we were, when we were, we had to go uh, to a store to make a purchase. And after that, they're like, well, we need to get some food. What are we going to eat? And it was, they're like red Robin five guys. No. And my wife's like, you're saying no to five guys? I'm like, yeah, I don't want another burger. I've had so many burgers over the past six months. And so, yeah, I need to. Actually, I was going to, until I was told we had to go somewhere last night, I was going to cook shrimp risotto, which is like one of my favorite things. Anyway, moving on, because this is going to get really dull. Uh, I don't know. What do you want to know? So I want to know. What is your next job about? What is my next what? Next job about the, the new job that you're training for? Oh, um, I work for a company that does uh, cranes. Oh, so I sell crane components and I help design crane. Uh, not giant. I don't do the giant ones, but I mean, I help yeah. do little cranes and, and stuff like that. It's it's an actually a pretty interesting job and. My, my company has several divisions in one building. So yeah. I go out and I don't know how much I'm allowed to talk about, but I see a lot of cool engineering marvels and guys like cutting up steel girders. And I mean, like steel girders, the size of my car. And it, it's, it's a pretty neat job. Um, it's a pretty Is neat job. Is it a job. Caterpillar type thing? Uh, a company like that or? Uh, it's, it's a company that does, you know, we're a distributor for, several kinds of cranes and okay. we also do you know and the, and the components to make cranes and industrial equipment and ergonomic okay. equipment and you know i sell a lot of things called lift tables where you can turn a table into an adjustable table to go up or down yeah yeah yeah, yeah. it's <laughs> i was i was super fascinated with all the excavators and and i used to have these miniature thingies uh cat and i still i still have the jcb boots jcb is a is the biggest guy in india 
so I got the boots that I wear once in a while. <laughs> I, I think I think you would probably find the back half of my uh, of the business I'm in rather fascinating. Then uh, <laughs> before that, what I did was I I and for 15 years I sold metal. Oh, which I think is hysterical that I would yeah. write metal and for my business for to you know pay my bills I would sell metal. <laughs> that was a lot less complex than what I'm doing. Yeah. You know, it used to be. I just had to know what shape and what kind yeah. of metal you were looking for. And I could have a quote for you in eight seconds. Now I've got to ask a whole lot more questions and a whole lot more stuff. And it's a lot cooler, but it's a lot more. And it's it's just going to take some time. Yeah, if anything, it's going to take you six months to learn. I mean, it, it can't be simple, right? Uh, I'm told it can go even like years. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Because what I do, you, you just... You know, uh, start the job, they'll give you a laptop, they'll give you access to uh, the code, and then you'll probably get like a week or something to, you know, catch up with your teammates and then learn what they're doing. And then you're on the job, you're expected yeah. to just, just be on top of things. So I work in the software industry and uh, it's very cutthroat, especially in Bangalore. So we basically uh, kind of run half the sweatshop for the whole country out of Bangalore. So uh, everybody from the rest of the country moves to Bangalore for, for work mm -hmm. because we don't have enough of, you know, uh, local uh, young students, uh, you know, uh, uh, who are trying to be software engineers and, and, and uh, they don't stay back here. They kind of uh, move to America or UK or Australia or whatever. So we've started to import from the other states, from the rest of the country. Uh, so uh, the talent is good but you don't get uh, any uh, chance to make mistakes. You basically are expected to be on, on the top of your game. This is a fast changing, fast evolving industry as well. Every six months, there is like a new piece of technology. There is a new buzzword. You just, you've just got to be, uh, you know, reading and learning up all the time. So you, your degree doesn't matter. They'll, they'll recruit you based on that, your education, but that doesn't matter really. You, you just have to know the latest and the greatest and you, you have to be, yeah. When, when you talk about like software and, and technology and all that kind of stuff, I can't even imagine. Like my my late father-in-law was, yeah. a, he was an engineer. He was a mechanical engineer. He has actually two patents to his name through uh, when he was working for um, uh, Emerson Electric. He invented the motor in electric dryers. I mean, he invented that. Didn't get paid for it, but he invented it. And you know, he was a big computer guy as well. And, you know, we've been going through and seeing all this stuff and all this old computer stuff that he had. Yeah. And then you think about what was his degree, you know, if he had gotten a degree in computers when he did, which I, he got an engineering degree, obviously. Yeah, yeah. But how useful, because he graduated in the 70s, right? Yeah. How useful would that degree be for what he was doing 10 years ago? You know, five years ago, he was working in biotech and doing yeah. biotech engineering for in the yeah. pharmaceutical industry. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, you have a degree with that degree. What you have in that degree is useless six months yeah. after you get out. Yeah. You know, you know we're, we're talking on Zoom right now. Zoom yeah. was nothing a year ago. Yeah. Now it's a ubiquitous part of life. And I always giggle when I when I do a Zoom meeting or anything because I look back to when I was a kid seeing the Transformers talking through screen, view screens or Star Trek and you know and now wow we're living in that future finally 
yeah. people can see my wall and this is not good because you know that but we're yeah. renovating we're renovating the house we're we've got to do the first floor first and yeah uh you know what what did you want well you know when you were growing up obviously you know you'd be into music of course because you know anybody doing what you do and doing what i do was definitely into music from early ages i'm sure yeah but yeah. what kind of cartoons were you watching what kind of kids shows so uh i, I was born in 82 so when i was really young we used to have just just one channel on the television and and we had like uh the the transmission starting at five in the in the evening and weekends was throughout saturdays and sundays so we had access to um spider-man we had access to um the old uh adam west show uh, batman batman and robin right so we had some um some star trek some some Star Trek Next Generation and some uh, some of the original Star Trek as well. So I became a Star Trek nerd that time. Uh, we basically had a lot of these uh, tapes, which are uh, uh, people from abroad when, when they used to visit, right? Our relatives and, and our family, whoever used to visit from America or, or, the, or the Gulf or Dubai or whatever it is, right? So they used to record, they used to tape Tom and Jerry and, and uh, the Flintstones and, and Scooby-Doo and all of that stuff. Right, so you had, a, you had a bootleg, a bootleg network to get Basically. Tom and Jerry and Scooby-Doo. Yeah. That is awesome. Yeah. And, and of course, all your Transformers and uh, SWAT cats and a lot of, a lot of ca- crap came with, with all of that. So, uh, uh, Oh, if we, you want to watch that stuff again, yeah, uh, legally now, the, there is a Roku streaming channel called Tubi. Okay. It's apparently all the stuff that nobody else wanted. <laughs> so it's got like you know tom and jerry and yeah. that kind of stuff scooby-doo i think but yeah. it's also got like the mid-90s cartoons that nobody remembers but me cartoon network stuff no no no, no it's they're like there's this one show called cops oh, which was no, uh, uh God, what is cops cops stands for something uh something something organization uh, it's an organization of police specialists fighting crime in a future time. So, <laughs> but it's this weird show because it's like the the aesthetic is like 1930s Chicago mafia. Yeah. But it's super high technology. Yeah. And my daughter is obsessed with it. And I'm like, my <laughs> God, we were driving home and last night and I, I, she, she goes it's crime fighting time which is like one of their catch which is the cops catchphrase that's like their their yo joe it's time to roll out it's crime fighting time and i just look back i'm like come on man can we just agree that that show never happened i never showed it to you and we don't talk about it anymore no yeah <laughs> they, the, in the 90s early 90s was when we started getting cable television so we we started getting uh the star network which is basically the fox's uh, asian version of fox is called star mm-hmm. And uh, we, we basically got uh, a Cartoon Network, which which uh, opened us up to all the Johnny Bravo and uh, uh, Powerpuff Girls and all of that stuff. So I was a little older than the demographic that, that this stuff was targeting. But I did see my younger cousins and all of them, uh, you know, uh, fawning over this stuff. And I, I have seen a lot of this stuff as well. But uh, by the late 90s, of course, we started getting... Uh, uh, video cds of south park and uh, oh. you know, family guy was coming up uh, we got we got ren and stimpy uh, dvds and all of that stuff so uh, a lot of this my whole life was just bootlegged 
in various ways and 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 only now uh, everything is accessible to everybody right i mean when you're watching something new i'm watching it as well because i have the same netflix i have the same amazon prime or hot uh, disney plus or whatever it is right everything is globalized that's the thing to me that makes this modern world so amazing yeah yeah i you know i don't got to wait for anything anymore and nobody's got to wait yeah. You know, I still don't completely understand how American entertainment became the global force that it is. Yeah. Because, I mean, I don't get it. I, I don't. Because it, entertainment to me is supposed to be, or is largely so culturally based. Yeah. And I don't think American culture is that interesting. Yeah. We were actually talking about this at, at the office the other day. It's like the only truly American holiday that we celebrate the only one that's an american thing here and only here is thanksgiving until canada yeah. stole it but they don't do it right anyway so it doesn't matter and what's the same know, day uh, no, I think it's a, no it's a no, different right? day because they yeah. their growing season is shorter than ours yeah yeah so they have their their thanksgiving is on columbus day and our thanksgiving is on thanksgiving yeah <laughs> started it but you know what's the american what do you do we eat yeah that's the american holiday we'll just go down and i mean every other yeah every other holiday that we have that we sell well i guess labor day huh anyway so you know american culture is such a mishmash of everything that it's it's everything and nothing all at once so i don't i i don't i don't get it i guess guess that's my point this is why there is a huge following for you know the manga and anime culture i mean there's that that stuff is huge and comic con of course made the american uh, pop culture and and the comic stuff and anything funny coming from america very famous but uh, the fan following that the manga and the anime world has is it's just insane it's just another level so if i tell uh, this this friend of mine who likes all this stuff if if i tell him i like the miyazaki movies and uh, that that's for him like the entry level stuff so these guys just watch this stuff on a daily basis they read this stuff on a daily basis i i just i'm like a peripheral kind of a fan i had my phase in my early 20s uh when i you know went through uh, a lot of the essential animes and uh, uh, anime movies and all of that stuff and read a lot of manga but uh, i consider myself like like an entry level novice level anime fan but that culture is deep and and oh, yeah. they 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 were influenced by all of those uh, you know 50s and 60s uh things that america was doing so they took the western uh, genre the sci-fi genre they, they took all of that um uh, they, they took the blade runner world um, that that kind of a thing and then they did various things with it so the neat uh, thing samurai, about, the neat thing yeah. about that is they took cuz i'm i'm huge in the uh japanese culture not as much yeah. into to, to manga and anime as i once was yeah. Uh, but i mean yeah. the video game culture the, the whole otaku culture i mean that's that's me to a point yeah and one of the amazing things they did was uh the you know with astro boy with godzilla with all of and try and even going forward 50 years to trigun to cowboy bebop to, yeah. to all these shows and i'm out of the loop on anime shows that's why i haven't named anything from the past 10 years yeah for me um Cowboy Bebop and Samurai Champloo those were the two last great anime i saw after that i, I kind of i couldn't get into champloo i tried, I tried yeah. champloo so many times and i just it, it didn't work for me yeah i mean uh, i'm not a hip hop guy but i i guess i see the appeal if you like hip hop and if you like there, there was a jim jarmusch movie which which the problem do, i had with uh, champloo 
was yeah it's, it's a samurai anime with no samurai they, yeah 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 it worked for me but they took but, yeah when they took these you know the the disney style of animation and put yeah. it through the japanese filter and created the style and then they yeah. took these I, these american ideas of science fiction yeah i, I think I'm, I'm not trying to be jingoistic or nationalistic here but i'm pretty sure the science fiction genre as we know it started in america yeah but they took those and they filtered that through Japanese ideas yep. and the Japanese traditional stories and created yep. things like, you know, because Godzilla is a protest movie about nuclear war. Yeah. And I, I also took uh, two college courses on manga and, and anime and Japanese pop culture. So I'm college certified uh, to discuss this. And, but that's why there's so many, they have so many like end of the world and post-apocalyptic stories because they've yeah. always had that. They've always had that. It's been part of their culture well before the atomic bomb. They've got yeah. volcanoes and earthquakes and typhoons and tidal waves. And it's that's why their buildings are made to just fall apart because yeah. if they're not, they're all going to die. Yeah. And so that's an amazing, interesting melding of culture. Yeah, I agree. And uh, when when you you watch that stuff and then you make something else back, right? I mean, first you had the Western and sci-fi or whatever, then Japan runs it through their filter mm -hmm. of their their uh, their in, uh, insane uh, uh, history of the last four hundred years, right? And and uh, uh, you watch that, and then uh, you become a filmmaker that is like two three layers, two three levels of influence, and then you make something nice. That that is good stuff, and and uh, I, I like that. I mean, um, filmmakers who are influenced by multiple. Well, and uh, what's great yeah. is like Star Wars. Star Wars yeah. is a space saga told. Yeah through Samurai, through Buck Rogers, yeah. through Shakespeare. Yep. Although, I mean, the Shakespeare aspect, aspect is pretty small because yeah. Lucas cannot write dialogue. Oh, my God. He yeah, can't. I mean, um, Mandalorian was basically the uh, lone wolf and... Yeah, lone wolf uh, and cub. Yeah. 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 It's, but it's the there was a move, there was a, a Kurosawa movie that I don't remember the name of that where yeah. the entire look of the Star Wars came from. The entire saber battle it's like then they use the shots and but then he wanted it to be told like these sci-fi serials and then but the kurosawa movies were based on half of them were based off shakespearean dramas and yeah yeah got I mean, this amazing not even multi-generational but multi-epoch yeah stuff coming together and we turned it into star wars i mean i i think george lucas kind of dumbed it down a little bit when you compare yeah. but yeah i think the Clint Eastwood stuff from the mid '60s was uh, more loyal to the uh, Kurosawa style, Yojimbo style. Uh, it was like you know, the, uh, oh, Yojimbo yeah. was like a shot by shot remake type thing, right? Almost um, uh, the what was this the second movie? Fistful, right? Was uh, Fistful was Fistful was uh, a remake of Yojimbo? Yeah, yeah. So uh, that was pretty loyal and and. Uh, uh, I think that opened up a lot of these next generation uh, movie directors like your George Lucas. Okay, so maybe I should check out the Japanese movies. Maybe you know that there's more to it than you know what we have here. The way we make westerns completely changed by these random Italian dudes, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, it's the melding of cultures and the the breaking down of borders when it comes to art and many other things as well. It, it's a truly amazing thing because yeah. And one of the, you know, you know, getting back to music, music is the same thing right now. So yep. 
you know, you look at Black Sabbath, right? If you started yep. Black Sabbath, you know, we're going to get into a heavy metal history lesson here. Black Sabbath is the very first heavy metal band. They weren't metal all the time. They were, in my other podcast, we are uh, the, um, the Department of Metal Antiquities. We go back and listen to old albums that are forgotten and, you know, kind of discuss them. And one of the things that we have noticed is a lot of the first metal bands were never metal all the time. They started to be metal, but not quite because nobody knew how to do it. Yeah. Nobody knew how to record it. Nobody knew how to produce it. And yep. nobody knew if it was even going to be a legitimate genre. Like, like it was, you know, when, when Judas Priest's second album or first album came out, heavy metal was at the same place that hip hop was when Beastie Boys License to Ill came out. Yeah. Yep. Bad is this a thing? What, you know, kind of thing. Cause we've seen, musical genres come and go but you take black yep. sabbath and then you know they come from blues they don't even come from rock it was a straight blues band that became a metal band then you have judas priest taking what they did and slowly siphoning out the blues then you have yeah. motorhead taking what judas priest did and adding in punk and then you yeah. have metallica it, it just so you have just these building upon building and then you get to stuff like whatever band you want to name right now because I, I i mean i don't know how to i don't know where to go from there because i could name some band that nobody's heard of or i can name a band everybody's heard of and either way i'm going to get that wrong so yeah i mean uh the early early 70s bands right when when uh, late 60s is when bands tried to uh you know uh add distortion to the guitars and and try to be heavy uh, all of that stuff but i think heavy metal happened when bands started to shed some of those blue structures that that one four five progression uh playing like rock and roll type thing of course it came back later with motorhead but there was a period when uh a lot of these british bands wanted to be progressive and uh, you had genesis and yes and all of that stuff and then um you had uh judas priest who were listening to black sabbath and genesis and you had uh, them listening to uli roth doing the scorpion stuff like neoclassical shred stuff and blackmore is doing that stuff as well that's very white people music not so blues blues is there but there is a lot of uh, you know classical uh, kind of influence right so uh, and and of course steve hackett from genesis is also a bit of a classical nerd so when when that music started to influence the way they wrote hard rock music i think that became heavy metal uh, that's how i i kind of uh, hear it uh, Judas Priest uh, over the first two third by the third album fourth album they were writing straight up heavy metal songs that would just uh, still be called metal like if if uh, uh, people were calling blue cheer metal uh, then it makes sense but I don't think anybody would call them metal now well because, that's the thing one of the yeah. conversations that continually goes on is when did heavy metal start yeah and it to me heavy metal is like it, the start of heavy metal is like velcro yeah, you know, you don't. There's no beginning, and there's no, you know, there's not really a beginning to that. You're pulling it, and as you're pulling, you know, heavy metal was embedded in rock, blues, and progressive. Yeah, and it's, it, and you start to pull it all away, and then eventually you get metal. But when, yeah. when does that pull away really happen? You know, Black Sabbath, I love them, and it's hard to call them metal. Yeah, it's, but. If you listen to the Dio era stuff, if you listen to the Tony Martin, I'm, talk, I'm talking. I'm talking about the seven. I'm talking yeah, about. Yeah, so that, that's seven. that's the evolution of Sabbath themselves. When Dio uh, joined the band, he basically said, "I don't want to do the blues stuff. I, I want to basically do the epic stuff." So that became 
Yeah, uh, the I, next generation of. I yeah. like the Dio Sabbath more than the Ozzy Sabbath. Same. I, mean, I, I love all of that, but yeah, I like. Uh, I mean, the 2021 me likes the more epic Dio and Tony Martin era stuff. Yeah. I see. My first Black Sabbath album was Live Evil with yeah. Dio singing. And yeah. So because of that, that's where I got on the train. That's where I really got on the train. Yeah. And nostalgia is a hell of a drug. And wherever you get on the train with someone, that's usually going to be your favorite record. My favorite Metallica album is still yeah. Injustice for All. That's where I got on the train. My favorite yeah. Pink Floyd album is still The Wall. That was the first thing yeah. I heard. Not the first one I owned, but it was the first one I heard. And yeah. that was what made me love them. So that's, you yeah. know, that's my Pink Floyd. That's my Metallica. Yeah. Although I will say Lulu is amazing, but that's besides the point because everybody hates me for saying that. And but when you look at like the original Sabbath, you know, there's a lot of stuff on there. Like Planet Caravan is not metal, and no. you know, there's a lot of bluesy rock on those first three albums. Warning yeah. is a straight up eight minute blues guitar solo. That's all it is. Yeah. Um, you know that first album it's only about a third metal and it don't they don't really as you as you rightfully said they don't become metal as we know it today until yeah. dio joins the band yeah yeah they would have like these metal parts that everybody's doing now uh but they would also have a lot of these other things they would randomly do like a piano ballad they would do uh, yeah that and that's and for the record that song sucks changes song. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah they had serious amount of variety i i think uh, uh they uh they listen to the rootsy kind of music i mean uh when i'm i i'm a, a fan of rock music i want my music to be heavy my music begins with uh you know jeff beck and and hendrix and it ends with uh maybe at the most in in terms of guitar players at the most uh um, mid 90s Zach Wilde might be my last uh, big guitar player like the guitar cover guitar magazine cover kind right, of right, guitar right. so yeah that is my spectrum of uh, you know uh, music I, I don't I listen to some jazz I listen to some fusion but when I want to play music I want to draw from all of these bands basically and uh, yeah uh, it, it's quite interesting in the sense that when I was a younger person like when I was uh, in my teens and, and 20s I was all for like being like super broad-minded and I would check out anything that comes my way. Uh, 2001, uh, I was checking out all the, you know, Gothenburg metal, Children of Boredom uh, uh, and Dark Tranquility, all the new bands I, I would check out. Lots of extreme music I was into. Uh, Meshuga was like the hot thing. I would, I would, I, I checked them out. I checked Tool out. So all of those bands, I, I had everybody on CD. And in the last 10 years, I have got rid of most of that stuff. And uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I kind of narrowed down as opposed to when you're growing older, you would basically uh, become, you know, uh, okay, more more uh, eclectic. I, I want to listen to, in, you know. In America, more... it's backwards. Yeah, America, yeah, yeah, yeah. For me, everything is narrow now. Now yeah. I've, I've just put everything to a funnel, basically. In, in America, you, I think it's at the age of 35, you stop buying music completely. But I yeah. mean, if you look over here, that's nice yeah that's and we i started buying records in uh 2015 because yeah. I, I couldn't sleep one night and i'm like well i don't ever need to buy a cd again because i get so yeah. much sent to me and i mean in 2015 just a couple of years into to writing about music is how and i mean right 
that that's how quickly like the heavy metal dog pile in journalism becomes once you get on yeah. one list you're on all the lists and you're unsubscribing from lists because you can't ever read your email because anyway <laughs> but i'm like well i didn't listen to cds i don't i didn't have a cd player in my house then i still don't yeah i have one in my car my next car won't have one you know so I, I yeah. really, and even then i still listen to music on my phone in my car and so yeah. well, how can i support the scene how can i support these bands oh i know i'll buy records yeah i have 700 now <laughs> started in 2015 nice. yeah so i made a mistake but that's besides the point. And but for me, it's it is expanding. It is trying to get bigger. And yeah. Although the last year I haven't done as many reviews, so I haven't in the last year I haven't bought nearly as much new music as I normally do. Um, I have been just kind of filling out collections of older bands. I now have two uh Aussie Aussie Sabbath albums. I only had one for a number of years. Uh, I'm only missing one Dio Sabbath album. I got half the Dio solo catalog and a couple rainbow yeah. records. And um, I'm trying to expand and get bigger and just always have new stuff. But I don't know. I don't remember where I'm going on that one. So, uh, but Black Sabbath, it's interesting because Black Sabbath is the culmination of Robert Johnson being filtered by Eric Clapton, being filtered by Tony Iommi being sung over yeah. by Ozzy. Yeah, yeah. So it's, I mean, there's a, there's a direct line right there. Yeah. And that's, in a, when you look at what metal is now, you have, yeah. you know, when you talk about Black Sabbath not being metal as we know it now, back in the 70s, you have bands playing what they did now and making it metal as we know it now. Just down tuning, yep. turning up the distortion a little bit more, and maybe low yep. going a little less on the synthesizers and piano ballads. Yeah, I mean, when when people ask me what kind of music you play, and if this person is not familiar with like stoner or doom or sludge or whatever, I would just tell them that you know it's hard rock, but we tune it down and we kind of do it in our own way. So it, it's basically um, uh, you know a Sabbath kind of music, but with maybe Lemmy kind of singing. It's, it's nothing new, but it's just that us writing new music from the one same one of the things I, I love about doom metal is i think doom metal now has the most sub sub genres yeah absolutely because, yeah you know you start off with you know when i was you know when i was growing up and getting into metal you know it was iron maiden uh it was dio it was you know kiss quiet riot yeah. kind of stuff now we look at all those bands as different kinds of bands yeah because you know Iron Maiden is traditional heavy metal. Yeah. Dio would be considered power metal now. And then <laughs> Quiet Riot is hair metal. Yeah. And Kiss is just whatever hell is popular that week. Let's let's call let's call thing what it is. Love Kiss, my favorite band actually. But they, you know, they didn't have a style. They they don't have one. They have all of them. Yeah, I mean, if you play uh, the old kind of metal now, you're called a new wave of traditional heavy metal. I haven't even I heard like, that I, one. That's a new I one. For me. Metal, dude. But then on top of that, you had uh, Metallica coming out with thrash metal. Yeah. Then two years after that, you had crossover thrash metal. Yeah. Then you had death metal and then yeah. black metal. And I mean, now yeah. we all know, we, I mean, we can all play the subgenre game. But for doom metal, you have doom metal, psychedelic yeah. doom metal, death doom metal, blackened death doom metal, nautical doom metal. I mean, it goes on. It is, it is the only subgenre to have that many different ones. That is the king of it. So now when you say doom metal, 
excuse me, I'm, I'm getting burpy. I apologize. I'm burpy. So when you say doom metal, it doesn't mean what it meant five years ago. Yeah, I mean, uh, if, if someone asks me what kind of music I play, I just say that I, I play 70s style hard rock music, but with, with like slightly more modern sensibilities because um, the way, uh, so uh, the strict rules for my band is that uh, the drummer and bassist are from the 70s. Uh, the drummer cannot play, you know, the more metal type stuff, right? Not even the candle master entry can't, can't just ride on the double bass and that kind of a thing. Bassist has to do that geezer butler, uh, you know the the fill in it, that that kind of a thing where the big riff, the, the big the big riffy bass yeah yeah and then and then plus some I mean when there is space you you just kind of play more don't play metal bass metal bass is basically following the guitar player just play the roots and yeah so uh, the rhythm section is basically a seventies hard rock band uh, if you just mute everybody else and just listen to drums and bass we are a hard rock band but when uh, when I come in with the guitars it's basically the Sabbath type stuff but with a different tuning, like you said, and uh, uh, I don't really think about you know doom or stoner or any of this stuff. So I think uh, I just uh, draw some kind of boundary for myself. Uh, okay, this is something that Bayversi can do. Uh, this is something that uh, Bayversi can do uh, as a single, as as like a, a side, uh, you know, B side kind of a thing, right? Mm-hmm. If I'm writing something softer with some acoustic parts and stuff like that, that can also be Bayversi, but that that cannot be our first single, right? So uh, there is uh, there is like a different uh, there's a definition of various things Bayversi can do and it, it it's uh, it's there in, in me because I've been doing this for so long right so and and it also uh, I also have to accommodate for my evolving taste my band's evolving taste and all of that stuff so each album obviously is going to be different and I also want to not repeat my own music because uh, there is just so much good stuff that I have I have like thousand CDs and there's like like 10,000 bands that I want to listen to. I, I always listen to and I want to draw from a lot of the good bands, right? So, uh, okay, so I, I want to do something like uh, this era Sabbath on this, uh, for this song, that sort of a thing. And not even consciously, I don't even plan it. So uh, we don't think stoner or doom or sludge or whatever, but uh, we think in terms of groove and and, and uh, the, the, the pulse of the song and, and, and in terms of the, uh, you know, uh, how, how the album might flow from song one to song six, right? So, for example, if I've written uh, one song, um, it's at it it has this like the for example the single that just came out, the Timeless Zone, right? It, it's a straight up, uh, it's a kind of an up tempo, not very doom, but it's like a metal kind of a thing, right? And I would write two more songs like that, and the album doesn't need more than that of, of that kind of a vibe. So then I would basically mix it up. So the next three songs I would write will have the other things that that Bayversi is influenced by. So I would draw from, okay, let's do like a slower tempo song. And I would basically set my metronome to something much slower. I would start riffing and jamming. And and that's when your sludge and doom and all of that stuff will come in. Because I've listened to a lot of that stuff and and automatically it's just vocabulary is always there. I'm just forming sentences. So it's like a task. So I I have a weekend. I want to finish the song number four for the album. I will set my tempo to this. I will, I will, probably go to YouTube and pick a random drum loop, I will basically start working on it. So that becomes a Sludge and Doom song. Um, then, uh, okay, so we've got 90% of the album done. Uh, what is the 10, uh, 10%, right? So uh, do we want to have like uh, something that uh, stays somewhere in the middle of the album uh, where people basically listen to two bangers and then they want a break. So we will basically give them a breather, that sort of a thing that Sabbath does. So 
slow it down, write a more mellow song. So that sort of a thing. So uh, I think in terms of where a song would fit on an album, and uh, uh, I, that's I a very sure. important thing. That's actually what I was about to say. I yeah. think, and this is coming from somebody who buys albums, who reviews albums, who listens to new albums, and yeah. has been for ten years, and you know, ten years longer than most people do anymore. Yeah. Not yeah. enough people think about music, think about yeah. what they're doing as an album anymore. Yeah, uh, it's unfortunate because singles sell. I mean, people basically. I, uh, I know, but I, yeah. I look. I know I'm the minority. I know I'm. I'm. You know, the person that buys 150 albums a year is not standard anymore. But yeah, I still yeah. want the world to cater to me because that's how I buy. Yeah, it. absolutely. Yeah. You know, yeah. there's been a lot of there's been a lot of things that I've tried to review over the years, you know, in different in different ways that I do it. There were times where I would, you know, download all the promos I had back when I wasn't getting very many. And when it pops up, oh, that's good. When does that come out? Okay, I'll review that one or, you know, yeah. whatever. There's been a lot of them where you listen to it out of context and it's not good. You listen to it yeah. in context and it's not good or yeah. vice versa. And I, I don't know. In, in terms of what someone should be doing, I don't know what's better. I just know what I prefer. Yeah, yeah. I, I think in terms of, uh, you know, album versus, uh, you know, listening to singles and all of that stuff, uh, attention has uh, gone down drastically for people. Everybody's on the phone. And we're back. Sorry, I had to discuss something off air briefly because I'm very professional. I didn't do it ahead of time. <laughs> no problem but yes it's the the idea for me you know i buy records and i mean as anybody that does one of these stupid shows with me i show them my wall because i'm very proud of my wall and proud that you know i'm still out there supporting bands as much as i can and when i go yeah. to shows i i i buy at least a shirt at every small show i go to big shows no screw those guys they yeah. Come yeah but and I, I love it when somebody really puts together an album because an album is supposed to have peaks and valleys. And yeah, I mean, that, that's how I grew up. I grew up, you know, buying, not very many because I didn't have any damn money, but, you know, I grew up, I grew up acquiring new albums, be they CDs or cassettes or vinyl yeah. or whatever. And I love that. I love being taken on a ride for an album, even if it's not a concept album. Although all albums should yeah. be concept albums. Yeah, but I think I, I, somewhat, I somewhat feel the kind of responsibility that all musicians should have uh, to introduce the next generation to, uh, you know, the, the, the awesomeness of listening to an album, opening like a booklet and going through the lyrics and all of that stuff by uh, being there wherever they are, right? I mean, uh, we, we want to be on uh, Instagram stories and, and Facebook or whatever people use YouTube. So let's give it to them in the format they like, and then uh, slowly lure them in. Like, let's, let's kind of uh, try and convert them to, you know, a, a physical format kind of consumers. And if that can happen, if we can basically, uh, uh, you know, make sure we have like 100 or 200 of these younger fans, I think we are good for the next album. So that's the kind of uh, view I have. So I will take the next um, one year to basically put this album out. I will give them the singles they want. I will give them the 30 second Instagram stories. I will uh, play these songs in these little uh, playthroughs or whatever the kids do these days. So 
I will give them in, in the format of their choice. Uh, but, uh, you know, this, al- this music is made for uh, full album consumption. So just give it a shot. And then, uh, you know, if you like it, just buy a, buy a music on, on a CD or a vinyl or whatever it is. And that's, that's the real trick, though. Because yeah. I, you know, there was a band, and I'll, I'll name them because they don't exist anymore, so it doesn't matter. Uh, a local band called, in St. Louis called Kentucky Knife Fight. And I reviewed their one and only album they put out. They were, yeah. I guess you would call them a dirty, obnoxious blues band. I don't really know how to describe it. And when whenever one of their songs would come up on shuffle before I reviewed it, it was in that that time where I would hear a song and you know, I put everything onto my my phone and, and whatever I liked, I would go back to. I remember hearing it going, wow, this is not good. But then hearing it in context, it's like, wow, this is amazing. Because it yeah. makes sense hearing it when when you hear that 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 piece, it doesn't work. It's like seeing a toe. You're walking yeah. the street and there's a toe on the sidewalk. And you're like, that shouldn't be there kind of thing. Yeah. And then Lita Ford, when I listened to her album, the last one she did, Living Like a Runaway, when I listened to that whole thing by itself, I'm like, this is kind of boring. But then when it would come up on shuffle, it's like, wow, this is great. So it, it's Yeah, I mean, that's the, that's the problem with singles, right? I mean, people pick uh, something that they like uh, as a single or the record label picks, but it might not represent the album. So. Yeah, it's exactly. And I mean... That that is a hard road to hoe, and I mean, as yeah. a, as much as I would hate to be a musician right now, yeah, I love being a fan in this era, because you know one of the, you know as we talked about the the lack of the globalization of the music, the globalization of everything is so much better, and the democratization of music has really changed the world. When I was growing up. You know, when I wanted yeah. to, be, when I was dreaming of being a musician and being, you know, somebody making albums, you, my goal was to be on Electro Records because all my favorite bands growing up were on Electro Records. Yeah. And how else would you make a record if you weren't on a label, a big label that could pay you? And then in high school, seeing my friends giving out their tapes that they had made with yeah. a four track. And yeah. now, four tracks are obsolete and pro tools and you can become you can for two thousand dollars complete outlay of two thousand dollars i could be a world i could be my own label my own producer and my own distributor with a band campaign that's amazing and i have purchased i think the um the what is it called uh to get started right uh it's never been better I think the the quality of the entry level equipment is just incredible. Yeah, but, and when I got back into playing yeah. guitars a few years ago, yeah, I was amazed at how, nothing. The pricing hadn't changed on anything. I just make more money now. Yeah, you know, I at that time I got a less. I got a Gibson Les Paul in 2012 for 750 dollars. Yeah. yeah, and it's an amazing, an amazing instrument. Yeah, yep. and and, and uh, if you if you go out of the Gibson and the Fender world. Uh, some of the Schecters and I just had to have a Gibson I I had to have a Gibson before. yeah yeah it makes sense I mean a good good resale value and all of that but some of these other companies are are making no I know I know I'm just no I'm totally with you I just needed to have a Gibson I I needed to finally have one (laughs) so yeah um, the uh, the money it would take to get you started right and to make like a serviceable uh, album 
Yeah, like you said, two thousand dollars is, is is enough. As a guitar player, I, all I would need is thousand dollars to get myself started. A decent guitar, uh, like a. Well, I was assuming you already had the equipment. For me, the two thousand dollars is you spend a thousand to buy Pro Tools and all yeah. the add-ons, and you spend a thousand dollars to print up a thousand CDs. Yeah, you don't even need Pro Tools if you use Reaper. So I don't even know what that. I, I'm not yeah. that. I, I just know Pro Tools. I'm not well versed. But yeah, I mean, yeah, I, it's amazing. It, it, I'm just talking about just. You know, you have your songs, you can have an album pressed and played and ready to go. And if you've got, yeah. you know, if you've got more money, you can even get it pressed on vinyl for 1500 not a yeah. thousand. I think the, the challenge now is uh, like these, these producers of these classic albums, right? They were, they were producers. They knew how to do the project management really well. They knew, uh, they knew how to cut the, cut the fluff. From the fat. Yeah. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, uh, 38 minute albums and, and like, you know, very, very to the point. And uh, some of them had fillers. All, a lot of our classic albums had fillers, right? But, oh, yeah. But, yeah, oh, yeah. Uh, but they, their job was not have it. So the best albums should not have fillers. But yeah, they, they, they knew exactly how to get the best out of all of these guys. But uh, there are like really bad practices from all, a lot of these newer uh, ways of doing this, right? I mean, you have, uh, you have the possibility of doing 100 takes of uh, the same thing. You can do one note at a time and, and uh, you know... Uh, record record an entire album and you can basically uh, use a plugin you don't need an amp you don't need a mic so a lot of those things have been drastically simplified but they've also been uh, a very uh, uh, how do i how do i put it uh, everybody's using the same plugins everybody's using the same uh, like like how everybody would use the SMG7 yeah, it, it's mic, like right? how the the 5150 pv amp became yeah. the sound of metal for a while yeah very ubiquitous yep now and that's not nothing against the 5150 amp, but honestly, and we're going to wind this down now because we're going to get totally guitar nerding and nobody's going to care. But the 5150 amp, yeah, I don't know if I like the sound of it or not because I've heard everyone using it. Yeah. So it's like, oh, here's a new band. Oh, I know what you're, I know what you're playing through. You've got a 5150 amp and you've got a, a boss distortion going right in front of it. Okay, great. I know that sound. Everybody has that sound. And yeah, well, I mean, it's the democratization. To to finish my point, and then I'll let you say one more thing, and then we're gonna call and we're gonna play uh, the single, the timeless zone, because we're gonna get it's, again. It's getting too nerdy, and it's 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 the too nerdy. But I love nerdy, but it's too nerdy. Um, the fact that anybody can now get involved and play music and put out an album and sell it to somebody in Australia is amazing. It it makes it harder to be found. It makes it harder to, to move up a level, but as somebody consuming it, it's amazing. And it's like, it's like Netflix, you know, the democratization of television has happened. When I was growing up, there were three, there were three channels. If you couldn't get on one of those channels, you weren't on television. And then all of a sudden cable happens and then cable breaks up. And then now we've got all these other streaming services and it's an amazing time to be alive. It's just, we don't have the only thing we don't have that we had then was we don't have the, the, the radio stations and the television stations that were introducing us to new music. You now to be a fan, it's not just, you're not a baby sitting in your high chair waiting for your baby food anymore. You have got to go up and you got to go find your food. Yeah. I mean, today you don't even have clubs and festivals introducing you to new bands. So it, it's a lot harder now. You know, now the, the most press that a, a band's going to, you know, for the most part, a new band's going to get in my town 
besides you know what I do is their name opening up for somebody that people have heard of at Red Flag or at Pops or the pageant. And that's unfortunate. It just makes it a little bit more difficult. I do think that if you make a good song, you can get heard. Yep, with some good marketing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you, but you have to have the good song first. All the marketing in the world isn't going to help if your song sucks. But yep. uh, uh, we're going to wrap this up now. Is there anything, that, where can people get your stuff? We didn't even talk about that. Uh, Bandcamp, bevercy.bandcamp.com. That's the place. Um, you have youtube.com slash bevercy. So we are beginning to set up our YouTube channel. So for the next two years, we want to have a plan. So uh, we want to basically share our story there because we don't get to play shows anymore. And I don't know when we will. So uh, we're going to be serious about uh, YouTube. Uh, we've kind of given up on Facebook and Instagram is just there. It'll follow suit. Uh, it'll start hiding our stuff. So uh, YouTube is, I think, where we will be. We will keep sharing our updates and, uh, you know, more insights on how we do things and, and what uh, each member contributes to the, the band and stuff like that. So uh, the kind of stuff that you would you would uh, come meet us uh, on, uh, uh, I mean, backstage at shows and fans would talk to us and ask in person. But now we have to do this on YouTube. I hear you. Well, hopefully things are getting better. And, you know, it's I used to go to two or three shows a month and I, I miss that. But I also yeah. but anyway, no more pandemic talk. Sorry. Um, we will now play uh, the Timeless Zone. Check it out. And I will put links to the Bandcamp and the YouTube in the description of the episode. Click those links. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you very much, uh, Shrikant, for taking some time for me on a Saturday evening for you. And this Anytime. Is, uh, this is the Glacier Musical Podcast. It doesn't play in Peoria. Goodbye!